Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Mary and Oaks Assembly of God in Ocala, Florida. We invite you to open your Bible as we join Pastor Tim McIntyre for today's message for Bible study. Well, in case you didn't pick up on it yet, today is Easter. Or as we in the church world know it, Resurrection Sunday. Amen. The world knows it is Easter, but it's Resurrection Sunday. Jesus rose from the dead and he is alive and he still is alive. We're going to talk about the resurrection today. The impact, the power that it can have in our lives, not just for what happened 2000 years ago. Can I tell you the resurrection is the most important event of history. Now that amen was kind of half-hearted. I think I know why, because some of you are thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, what about the cross? Well, I'm talking about both together, the cross and the resurrection, because you see, each one is worthless without the other. We'll talk more about that later, but without the cross, the resurrection doesn't mean near what it means. And without the resurrection, the cross means nothing. Again, we'll talk about that in just a moment. So it's the most important event in history, at least from the perspective of the Bible, from the perspective of spiritual things, from the perspective of God's people. But we also find that the resurrection is one of the most hotly debated events of history. It is the most powerful event in history, and not just because of the power that it would take for God to raise Jesus from the dead, but also the power that it can have in our lives today and the power that it has had in the lives of people over the last 2,000 years. The title of what I want to share with you today is The Proof and Power of the Resurrection. The Proof and Power of the Resurrection. We're going to be reading from Matthew 28... Verses 1 through 10, all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record the resurrection and the events surrounding it. And to be honest, if you want a full picture of everything that happened that morning, you've got to read all four accounts because they all give different perspectives, different accounts, different testimonies of who experienced what on the day of resurrection. But today we're going to be reading from Matthew 28. Starting in verse 1, it says, Now after the Sabbath, the Sabbath was Saturday. Jesus was crucified on Friday and buried late Friday. He was in the grave all of Saturday, the Sabbath. And now we get to early in the morning on Sunday. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. An angel showed up. Mary, some other women, this account only mentions two of them, but there are several of them involved. They're coming to the tomb. The other gospels tell us that they're coming specifically to try to anoint Jesus' body to show a sign of love and devotion and respect. To be honest with you, I think the ladies also figured that the guys didn't do the job right 
preparing Jesus' body for burial. Just, just to be honest, because the, the, the account tells us that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus got together, prepared Jesus' body for burial, which was a big deal. It was wrapping the body in very special cloths and mixing in with it 75 to 100 pounds of different ingredients. And like I said, the ladies probably figured the guys didn't do it exactly right, so we're going to finish it up. But they came that morning. They wanted to come that morning to try. And I say to try because they know that there's been this massive stone that has been rolled over the entrance to the tomb, a stone that there's no way they can move. The other accounts of the other Gospels even say that they talked about, how are we going to get this moved? I I don't know what's... Let's just go and see what we can do. Maybe somehow we can get in and anoint Jesus' body. But it says that there was a great earthquake and the angel rolled the stone away from the door. Why did he do that? Was it so Jesus could get out? No, Jesus was already gone. The angel rolled the stone away so the witnesses, the women, the men could get in and could see what had already happened. Going on in verse 3, talking about the angel, his appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. They passed out cold. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here because he is risen. As he said, come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. And there you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. If we read again the accounts, the accounts of the resurrection in all four gospels, we see on that exact same day, as was portrayed in one of the video clips we watched, John and Peter go to the tomb. It's very sad to say that the women showed up and told the disciples that Jesus was alive and the men did not believe them. But Peter and John were curious enough that they began racing across the fields. John was younger and faster and got there first, but he waited outside until Peter got there and Peter looked in. And the Gospel of John tells us that they saw it and they kind of believed, but they wondered. But as we look at all the accounts together, we see that sometime that afternoon, Jesus appeared to Peter alone. We don't have the account. We don't know what was said. We don't know what was done. But Jesus appeared specifically to Peter. I believe he did that because Peter would probably be wondering, would Jesus have anything more to do with me? Because he had denied Jesus three times. In fact, in one of the accounts, I can't remember if it was the angel or Jesus told the women to go back and tell the disciples and Peter pointed him out because he wanted Peter to know that he had not rejected Peter even though Peter had denied him. So sometime that day he appeared to Peter. And then Luke tells us that there were two disciples, not of the twelve, but two different ones that had left Jerusalem were on their way to another town six, seven miles away, Emmaus. And Jesus showed up to them, but God kept them from recognizing him. And they had a conversation. And eventually they did recognize and they rushed back to Jerusalem 
to tell the disciples that Jesus had appeared to them. And while they're in the middle of talking about that, that evening Jesus appears to ten of the disciples that are all gathered together. Only ten because Judas is gone. And Thomas is not there. I figure he probably went out for takeout. They're all hungry. So Thomas has to wait a week to see Jesus. But that day he appeared to so many people. And then a week later he appealed to all the disciples together. And and Scripture tells us that over the next 40 days, Jesus would come to them from time to time, spend time with them, teach them, encourage them, challenge them. And at one time there were over 500 people that saw him all in the same place at the same time. Today I want to divide our time between talking about the proof of the resurrection and the power of the resurrection. I want to deal a little bit with the proof of the resurrection because probably if we were to take a poll here in this room today and maybe even among those of you that are watching online about how many of you believe with all your heart that Jesus really did raise from the grave, most everybody would raise their hands. We believe that. But you know what? There's a world out there that does not believe it. They're very vocal about it. They're very argumentative about it. They're very um, debated. Like I said, it's one of the most hotly debated topics about history. Did Jesus really rise from the grave? And there's all kinds of reasons and excuses and such that people put forward to try to prove that he did not. So I think it's important that we as believers understand not just by faith, which is wonderful, That by faith we believe that Jesus rose from the dead because God said it in his word. We trust his word and so we believe it. But that we understand that there is good, solid proof, historical records. In fact, the resurrection is one of the the most well-documented historical events in history. There's good proof for it. Does that mean that we can prove it beyond anybody's reasonable shadow of doubt? No. But can I tell you that absolutely nobody can disprove it either. And there's such tremendous support. So why is it, if there's so much support for the resurrection of Jesus, why is it that so many people, a great majority of people, refuse to believe? There could be any number of reasons. One, just because in our naturalistic worldview without God taking God into account, we just, the world does not believe in the miraculous. How many would agree it would take a miracle to raise Jesus from the dead? Obviously. And for those that have that naturalistic, materialistic, worldly mindset that there is no such thing as the supernatural, there is no such thing as a miracle, then it would be impossible for Jesus to have risen from the grave. Then there are those who do not believe in God, which kind of falls in the same camp. If you don't believe in God and you don't believe in a God that has a kind of power, then it can't happen. But can I tell you, I believe that there are some, and these are the ones I pray most for. I pray for all of them. But some who don't believe and they choose not to believe because they know that if they do believe, there's something they need to do about it. And they don't want to do that something. But first of all, before we look at some of the proofs, why is it so important that we believe in the resurrection? I mean, wasn't the cross enough? I mean, the Bible teaches us, very rightly so, That Jesus died on the cross to pay the price for our sins so that we could have a relationship with God our Father. And that's the most important thing, right? That was okay to say amen there because it really is. Okay. 
So really, if that happened, why is it so important and necessary that we believe in the resurrection? You see, what Jesus did on the cross was supremely important and absolutely necessary for salvation, for us to have forgiveness of sins. But as I mentioned earlier, it's absolutely worthless if the resurrection did not follow. Because you see, as Jesus tried to explain to his disciples all along the way leading up to the cross of what was going to happen when they went to Jerusalem, that he would go, that he would be rejected, that he would be arrested, that he would be tried, that he would be betrayed. I mean, all kinds of phrases and things that came true that he would describe to them that he would be turned over to the Romans, that he would be crucified, that he would die, but that he would raise again on the third day. It's interesting. He told them that over and over and over again. At least three or four specific times are recorded in the gospel, in the, in the four gospels. In the year leading up to Jesus' last trip to Jerusalem, when Jesus says, we're going to go to Jerusalem one more time. And when we do, this is what's going to happen. And the disciples just didn't get it. I'll be honest with you, looking back, it's like, how in the world could they not get it? Jesus couldn't have made it any clearer. But how many times have we gone through life and somebody's told us something and we just didn't get it until it happened? It just wasn't in the frame of, we weren't in the frame of mind. It just wasn't in our worldview that we could truly understand until after it already happened. And that's kind of how the disciples were. And so even though Jesus said he would rise from the dead, nobody of his followers were expecting it. In fact, the religious leaders put more preparation into Jesus raising from the dead than his disciples did. Now, I'm not saying they did that because they believed it would happen. The story we read here in Matthew 28, if you jump back to the end of chapter 27, the last thing that's said is that the religious leaders go to Pilate and say, hey, listen, this guy said he was going to rise again on the third day. So, I mean, it wasn't like some little teaching that was obscure and only a couple decided. I mean, the word had gotten out that Jesus had said this. And so they go to Pilate and they say, listen, he's dead. But you know what? The disciples could go and steal his body and claim that he is resurrected and that would cause even more problems than we already have. We need to stop that from happening. We need to set a guard. And, and Pilate said, listen, you've got a police force. And they did, the temple police. You go set a guard and make it as strong as you want to make sure that nobody steals the body. And that's exactly what they did. That's why in the story it says that when the angel showed up after the earthquake and they rolled the stone away, that the guards just totally passed out. They'd set the guard. As I said, the religious leaders did more to prepare for a possible event. They didn't believe in the resurrection either. Than the disciples did. The disciples were expecting it. Took them totally by surprise. But Jesus said, I will rise again. Look at it this way. All the things that Jesus said to them, even though he told them exactly what would happen and how he would die, when it happened, if he did not raise from the dead, how, what would that mean for the disciples? We saw a glimpse of it again in one of the video clips that we saw earlier in the service. The disciples gathered in a room, scared, afraid, because they think that they're going to be arrested and perhaps crucified also as followers of Jesus, not knowing what to do, wondering, was all the things that Jesus told us really real? Was it really true? Were we mistaken? Was he mistaken? 
I'm sure those kind of conversations took place. And if Jesus had never rose from the grave, that's all it would have been. They all would have probably disbanded, gone their separate ways, and history would have been a whole lot different. I like the way one preacher put it. They said that on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. And when God raised him from the dead, it was God's way of saying, amen. You see, it was the resurrection that proved that the cross paid the price for our sins. It was the resurrection that proved that Jesus knew what he was talking about. It was the resurrection that proved that Jesus was who he said he was. That's why we see in scriptures like Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. It's not just believe that he died on the cross for our sins. We need to believe that but it's also erased from the grave. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 13 to 19. Paul is trying to deal with a false teaching in the Corinthian church. Some people were trying to say, oh, the resurrection is, uh, it, it seems to imply anyway, that they were teaching that the resurrection was just kind of a spiritual metaphor for new life that, you know, people don't really rise from the dead. You know, it's just a, just a story, just a parable, just an idea put out there so that, you know, we can kind of relate or whatever. And, and, and Paul's saying, no, <laughs> if people don't rise from the dead, that means Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we're in trouble. Now, that's my paraphrase. Let me read you what Paul wrote in First Corinthians 15, starting in verse 13. He says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Jumping down to verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So it's important that we believe in the resurrection, that we know that it's an established fact. And I think it's good for us as believers to understand why we believe in it other than just the fact God said it. You know, over the years, there have been so many people that have tried to disprove the resurrection. You can Google it, look it up online, whatever. There have been so many people that have made it their goal, some of them their life goal, to set out and come up with all the facts that are needed to prove that Jesus did not raise from the dead. And not a single one of them have been successful to find evidence that 100% proves it. In fact, many of them who set out to do that ended up becoming believers. One of the more recent ones and more well-known, especially to our generation, is Lee Strobel, who was a reporter for, I think, one of the Chicago papers. And his wife became a believer. And it frustrated him because when they got married, they determined they were atheists. They were always going to be atheists. They're going to raise their kids to be atheists because this God stuff is ridiculous. And when she became a follower of Jesus, he made it his goal to disprove the resurrection. And he went on a hunt. He went on a research. I mean, he spent a lot of time researching it. And in the process, he came to know that Jesus raised from the dead. He wrote a book called The Case for Christ. A movie was produced. Many of you probably seen the movie The Case for Christ. If you've never seen it, you need to watch it. The Case for Christ. It's a riveting story of what he went through. So many people who have turned from doubters and deniers 
atheists and agnostics to believers by trying to prove that Jesus did not raise from the dead. I find it really interesting, the story that we read in Matthew 28, 1 to 10. I told you that right before that, it talks about the religious leaders going to Pilate, asking for a guard. They got a guard. Right after that story, that same day, we find the first attempt to cover up the resurrection. And it's the religious leaders talking to those guards because they went back to report what had happened. They told the religious leaders, listen, there was an earthquake. I don't know if they saw the angel or not, but something happened. And we just, oh, it was terrible. And the religious leaders paid them money and said, listen, from this point on, you tell people that his disciples came and stole the body. I find it really ironic that that's the reason they posted the guards so the disciples couldn't steal the body, but then they ended up having to pay the guards to tell people the disciples did steal the body to try to cover up the resurrection. Well, there's a lot of things that can be said, and you can research it on you, but let me just give you some basic facts that provide a solid foundation for our belief in the resurrection. The first one is this, Jesus died. Now, you might say, well, duh, of course he died, he was crucified. But that is one of the things that people have tried to use to say that Jesus didn't really raise from the dead because he didn't really die on the cross. It's technically called the swoon theory. The idea is that Jesus was on the cross and whether he took a drug or whether he just passed out or whatever and people thought he died and they took him down, they put him in the tomb and in the coolness of the tomb, he eventually revived and broke himself out. Can I tell you that that is absolutely impossible? I would say that's people grasping for straws. The Romans knew how to crucify somebody. The beating that Jesus endured before he was crucified killed many people. And it brought him to the brink of death. The Romans knew how to torture people. And to make it last and when to cut it off. Jesus was on the cross for about six hours. And nobody ever came off a cross alive. And to make sure they put the spear into his side rupturing that, I think it's called the pericardial sac around the heart. I I may not get that right. You nurses can correct me later. Blood and water flowing from that. Not only that, but they took him down. Joseph got permission to get the body. I told you that he and Nicodemus had wrapped the body with all the spices and everything, 75 to 100 pounds. Can you imagine even being whole and healthy, being wrapped up like you're, you know, being bound up with a winding cloth with 75 to 100 pounds of stuff on you and being laid out and you're going to free yourself even if you're whole and healthy. Much less if you'd gone through what Jesus Christ went through and were still alive, which he wasn't. Again, it's grasping at straws. There's no way he could have done that and wrapped himself, moved the stone past the guards and walked miles to appear to the disciples. Jesus did die on the cross. The second thing is this, and this is the big deal. The tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. Nobody has ever claimed the tomb wasn't empty. Even the people that didn't want it to be empty. The Romans never claimed the tomb wasn't empty. The Jewish leaders never claimed the tomb wasn't empty. It was empty. The big question is, where was Jesus' body? Now, some people say, well, the women went to the wrong tomb. Well, if that's the case, why didn't they point at the right tomb? They're the ones that posted the guards. 
There are those that said, well, the Romans took the body. The Romans had no reason to take the body. And even if they had, after all the uproar, all they had to do is say, yeah, sorry, we were pulling one over on you. We took the body. We took it away so you couldn't take it. Here it is. The same thing can be said for those who would say, well, the Jewish leaders took the body. Of all the people who'd want to produce the dead body, it's the Jewish leaders who had the most, most, uh, most motivation to do that, and they couldn't do it. And then, of course, we get down to the lie that was spread around. The disciples stole the body. Think about this. The disciples, what motive would the disciples have to steal the body? Well, to save face, maybe. I don't know. Maybe there's a little bit of a motive there, but they had absolutely nothing to gain, and they had everything to lose. In fact, when you think about why Jesus was crucified and the way the religious leaders and the Romans felt about it, what could have happened did happen. And what I mean by that is they claimed that Jesus was alive and because they claimed that Jesus was alive, they were harassed, persecuted. And church history tells us that every single one of the disciples except for John died a horrific death because of their stand that Jesus rose again. Why in the world would they steal the body? Why would they lie about it? The other thing is, even if Jesus' body was stolen, how did he keep showing up alive? That's the next fact. So many people saw Jesus alive. And it's not stories that were written hundreds of years after it happened, trying to explain something or justify something or verify something. We have accounts that go all the way back. Accounts that were written down within years of all these events saying this person saw Jesus, that person saw Jesus, these. And there was 500 that saw him all at one time. And many of those people are still alive, so you can go talk to them. It wasn't a myth that developed over time. And Jesus showed up at different times in different places under different circumstances. Somebody said, well, you know what? It was just these people had this hallucination. How do 500 people have the same hallucination? That'd be sort of like me standing up here saying, hey, did you enjoy the dream I had last night? You have no idea what I dreamt last night. You can't have a hallucination. Some say, well, it's just wishful thinking, your power of suggestion, you know, your imagination, you know, but the circumstances are all wrong. That might be true. It's only one person. One person that says, I saw Jesus. But you're talking about a multiple, multitude of people over a period of time. Again, 500. You don't have these visions, these things, just by the power of suggestion or wishful thinking. All those things are, are really powerful proofs and foundations for the resurrection. But can I tell you what I think the number one most powerful proof of the resurrection is? Changed lives. The lives of those who saw Jesus were radically changed. I already referred to that a little bit. The fact that these men and women totally changed. Especially the men cowardly, were transformed into people with courage, willing to fearlessly proclaim the death uh, to their death that Jesus was alive. Now, let me tell you something. I, I think this is pretty easily not, I mean, this is pretty easy to understand that it won't be disputed. And that is people don't die for something they know to be alive. Now, people die for lies. Okay. There are a lot of people who believe lies 
But they're willing to die for them because they believe it to be true. But unless somebody's crazy, they're not quite right upstairs. They're not going to die for something they know to be a lie. If Jesus did not raise from the dead and the disciples did not see him, why in the world would they continue to proclaim that without wavering all the way to their torturous deaths? Jesus is alive. I saw him changed lives. That leads me into the second half of what I want to share with you today, and that is the power of the resurrection. I just said, I believe the greatest proof of the resurrection is the changed lives. But can I tell you that the greatest way that the power of the resurrection is manifested is the same thing, changed lives. The Bible has a lot to say about the resurrection and what it accomplished and the power it released and the things that it does. But can I just share with you a couple of things that the power of the resurrection will do for us if we take advantage of that? Changed lives. We see it from the disciples 2,000 years ago all the way through history. Lives have been changed by the power of the resurrection. The first one is this. The resurrection gives us new life. The resurrection gives us new life. First Peter 1.3, Peter opens up this letter he wrote to the persecuted believers. He's trying to tell them, hang in there, guys. Jesus died. He was persecuted. We will be too. But you hang in there because we've got something worth hanging on to. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. When you read the verses surrounding that, what's he talking about? He's saying because Jesus rose from the grave, he can offer to us new life. We can be born again. And maybe you recognize that phrase. It originally shows up in the Gospels in a conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus, a great religious leader in Israel and he became a believer he's honestly seeking he's honestly searching and part of that conversation Jesus says you must be born again it's a great picture because unfortunately it illustrates a very sad truth and that is that the first time we are born we are born into a sinful fallen world that still has much good in it because God originally created that way, but it has a lot of evil and it has a lot of sin. And what's even sadder is that we're not only born into a sinful world, but we are born into a sinful world with a sinful nature. Because of sin's entrance into the world and into humanity way back at the beginning, we all inherit that which is in us that draws us to what is wrong, that draws us to what is destructive. It doesn't seem that way at the beginning many times. It seems like fun. It seems like, oh, this is wonderful. But it's destructive. We're all born sinners. The only person that was ever born that was not a sinner was Jesus. And it's because he was God come to earth in the flesh. And the Bible says that we are all sinners separated from God. And the wages of sin is death. And that's not just physical death, it includes it, but spiritual death. Eternal separation from God and all that is good. That's why hell is hell, because there is nothing that is good there, because all good comes from God. And hell is the absence of all those things. The wages of sin is death. 
but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus came. He didn't come just to be a great teacher, a great example, give us some things to live up to, an example to follow, treat people well. He came to live the perfect life that we could not live so that when He died, it paid the price for our sins. As I read earlier, that if we put our faith and our trust in Him and in what He did and surrender our lives to Him, our sins can be forgiven and we can have a relationship with God. We can have this new life. We can be born again. I heard an illustration a number of years ago that really just jumped out at me. I shared it with you once before, so you may remember this. I was listening to somebody preach and they said, one of the reasons we need to be born again is because the first time we were born, there are so many things that are messed up. And this is significant. You say, well, yeah, that's obvious. No, this is significant because there are so many times that people will say, why is the way I live wrong in God's sight? He made me this way. Why is it wrong for me to do this? This is the way I am. Why is it wrong for me to pursue this or go there? Because this is the way I've always been. It's because we're born, all of us, in different ways. We are born broken. And it's not God that created us that way. It's the sinful nature that has twisted us into that. That's why we've got to be born again. To be made new. And so, because of the resurrection, we can have new life. We can start over. How many times have you said, I just wish I could start over? We can't literally start life all over again, but God gives us a chance to start over with new life. To wipe the slate clean in His eyes. To have our sins forgiven. And to be put back in right relationship with Him. And I just want to appeal to all of you that are here today and those of you that are watching online that if you have not done that, any time, every time is the right time to do that. But today would be the perfect time to do that. As Paul says, now is the day of salvation. Maybe you've been putting it off. Don't put it off any longer. The resurrection gives us new life. But even beyond that, the second thing is the resurrection gives us new strength. You see, God doesn't just save us when we respond to His Spirit drawing us and we confess our sins, we repent of our sins, we surrender our lives, and then just say, okay, I'll see you in heaven. He says, I'm going to be with you from now on. In fact, the Bible says in a way we can't totally understand, His Spirit comes to dwell within us. And because Jesus rose to new life, Scriptures indicate that theologically speaking, when we have died to our past, we rise to new life and new power. That new life brings new power. That's what baptism symbolizes, by the way. Why Jesus asked people to be baptized. It, it symbolizes the fact that, you know, you go under the water, you come up, it's like your sins have been washed away, but even more powerfully, it symbolizes that we have died to our old life and we've been raised to a new one, a life lived in God's strength and in God's power. In Ephesians chapter 1, there's many scriptures for each. I just chose one for each. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul's telling the church at Ephesus, I pray for you all the time. And here's the stuff I pray for you about. And I'm just going to pull out part of it there. He says, I pray, looking at uh, 118, I pray that you may know 
the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Now, what exactly does that mean? Well, I think it's just a little bit different for each and every one of us. But the general principle is that God wants to be with you. God wants to help you with whatever you face. And he will go as far as and include any power that is necessary, even the power it took to raise Jesus from the dead. He will exert that on your behalf if you need it. The resurrection gives us new strength. The third thing is the resurrection gives us new help. Say, isn't that the same thing? No, no, I'm talking about help as in somebody caught alongside of, somebody to stand with us, somebody to be there for us, somebody to defend us, somebody to to stick up for us. You see, since Jesus is raised from the dead, the Bible says that he now is at the right hand of the Father. And what is he doing there? He's in all his glory. He's done his job. He's got all glory, honor, and power. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. But it says specifically that he is there on our behalf. The Bible makes it very clear. Jesus prays for us. And I believe he doesn't just pray for us as a group. Lord, touch all those Christians that are alive today and the ones that are... I believe he prays for us individually. And I love what Paul says in Romans 8. It's in that same chapter he talks about how he prays for it, but this is something else. He says, you know, there's a lot of things that's going to come against us in life. We've got an enemy that's going to come against us. We've got circumstances that are going to come against us. But I like what Paul says here in Romans 8, 31. He says, what then shall we say to these things? All these things are coming against us. If God's for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, that's not saying you can just tell God, hey, I want this, this, this. This is everything that we need. I mean, it means everything that we need. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's going to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God. Indeed, he's interceding for us. What that's telling us is we live this life. We now have new help. God, Jesus, they're on our side. They're with us to support us, to help us, to defend us, to strengthen us. They're rooting for us. Jesus is praying for us. And the last one I want to share with you, there's others that we could. The resurrection gives us new hope. Because as much as God will help us, and he will help us to the degree that we need it, we're not going to be just excused from all the heartaches and the sorrows and the difficulties of life because we live in a sinful, fallen world. The good news is that God can take all those things that we face and he can use them to bring good into our life and even more importantly, bring good into our eternity. But because of the resurrection, we have new hope. 1 Corinthians 6.14 says, And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Whatever we face in this life, God will be with us. He'll help us. Sometimes he will deliver us, deliver us out of it. Sometimes he will deliver us through it. But ultimately, we will be delivered from all that is wrong and bad and sinful and evil of this world. And we will be with him forever with glorified bodies. The resurrection that Jesus had, Paul says that Jesus was just the first fruits. He was just the first one. We'll all have the opportunity to be resurrected and live eternally with God. I was going over my notes again this morning and I just had this thought that came to my mind. It's not a new thought, it's there. And I just feel like I should speak this out. 
I don't mean for this to be difficult, but there are so many of you guys, including myself and my wife, we've lost loved ones over this last year, year and a half. Some from COVID, some from other things. Can I tell you that when we're part of the family of God, we'll all be together again. That's not the most important part of the hope that we have, but it's significant. But the most important part of the hope we have is that this life is not all that there is. That God loves us and he will save us if we've responded to that. And he will help us through this life with everything that we face. Again, sometimes delivering us out of things, but sometimes delivering us through them. Because he knows it will bring about good in our lives long term. But it doesn't end here. And one day it will all be over and we have hope for that time. So I say thank God for the resurrection. I thank God for the power of the resurrection to grant new life, new strength, new health, new hope. So how do we respond today? The first and most important thing is what I already said, and that is that if you have never surrendered your life to Christ, I encourage you and challenge you today, whether you're online or you're right here, to surrender your life to Christ. You say, I I think I'm okay. I mean, I go to church. I'm in church today. And I don't just go on Easter. I go other times too. And maybe you read your Bible. Maybe you pray. Maybe you give to good causes. Maybe you give to the church. Maybe you do good things. Maybe you try to help people. You try to be nice. You try to be kind. Those are all wonderful things. But the Bible makes it clear that those things cannot save us. Because we still got the sin. We still got the twistedness. We still got the problem. We can't cover it up. We can't balance it out. That's why Jesus came. And that's why we got to put our trust in him. That'd be the most important way to respond today, to surrender your life to Christ. Other than that, it would be to depend upon God for his power. Perhaps today you're here and you say, I'm a believer in Jesus. I've never doubted the relationship, or I haven't recently anyway, but I'm good. I'm good with Jesus. But maybe, just maybe you've gotten your eyes off of the power of the resurrection and you've been really struggling. Now, I'm not saying if you're really struggling, there's something wrong with you. You're not living for Jesus. I'm just saying, even as believers, we struggle, but sometimes we struggle more than we really need to. And I'm not trying to minimize anybody's struggles. I guess I'll put it this way. If we're not fully leaning on Jesus, we're struggling more than we need to. If we're fully not trusting in God and his work in our lives, we're struggling more than we need to. And maybe today some of you need to be reminded of that, that because of the resurrection, you have resources available to you that you can trust in. Can I tell you one way we all should respond? With joy. In our story, it said the ladies, when they found out that Jesus had risen from the dead, they went rushing to tell the men, and they went with great joy. When we leave this place in a little while, I hope that every single one of us can walk out those doors with joy, filling our hearts and our minds, no matter what we're facing, because Jesus is alive, and it makes a difference in our lives. And then the last thing is this. We don't need to keep it to ourselves. Those ladies didn't. The angel told them at first, and then Jesus himself told them, go and tell. Go and tell. And he kept saying that even after he appeared to his disciples, go and tell, go and tell, go and make disciples. That's our calling. That's our commission. 
We need to let a dead world around us, dead in sin and in bondage, know that there is a Savior that can change their lives and change their eternity now and forevermore. Let's all stand together. Before we wrap this all up, and we're going to have a concluding song in a couple of moments, a great song just to end the service, and then I'll close in prayer after that song. But first of all, I just want to say, are you here today and you need Jesus as your Savior? Today is the day. Maybe you've been hesitating to to turn over your life, to turn over the steering wheel, to step over that line, whatever picture you want to use, but to surrender your life to Christ. You need your life changed. And maybe you've tried hard to do it yourself and you've made some progress, but you need a Savior. And you'd say, today is the day. I want to invite Jesus Christ to be my Savior. I want to surrender my life to Him. I want to trust in Him for salvation. Would you just raise your hands? Anybody at all? I do not see any hands. Maybe I'm missing them. Maybe there's a reason you say that's me, but I can't get it up. I, I don't. Maybe there's somebody that's online. So could we just take a moment and pray? And if you need Jesus as your Savior, I want to encourage you to pray something similar to what I'm going to pray. I can't pray it for you. You've got to pray it for yourself. Would you pray something like this and mean it? God, I come to you right now, and I am a sinner. I'm sorry for my sins. I repent. I, I ask that you forgive me. Not based on what I do or can do or not because I deserve it, but because your word says that's why Jesus died, was to pay the price for my sins. I trust in, I believe in who he is and what he said and what he did. I know that he is God and he came here in the flesh and he died on the cross that my sins could be forgiven and he rose again. And I want to put my trust in Him. So Lord, forgive me. Take control of my life. Help me to live for You. Help me to leave my sin behind. And Lord, I thank You that Your new life is mine as I trust in You. Amen. One last thing I want us to pray about. How many of you would say, you know what, Pastor, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, I'm good. This is one of my favorite Sundays of the year because we're celebrating the resurrection, but I could use some extra help today. There's no shame in that. There's no shame in surrendering your life to Christ either. We say, I could use some extra strength. I could use some extra help. Just raise your hand. Maybe, you got some, maybe you're a Christian, but you've got some things you need to change. They're not all changed yet. Lots and lots of hands. Let's just pray for each other, can we? Father God, we come to you right now with hands raised saying, God, thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for new life. Thank you for salvation in Jesus Christ. But Lord, we need your help today. We're facing difficult things, Lord. Maybe... It's a health issue, Lord God. Maybe it's a relationship thing. Maybe it's something in a marriage or some other relationship in the family. Maybe it's a problem at work or at school. Maybe some financial difficulties, Lord God. Maybe it's just confusion. Maybe we don't know where to turn or what to do. Maybe we know what we're supposed to do, but we can't quite have the power to do it. And Lord, we need you. And we need that resurrection power in our lives. And we ask in Jesus' name that you would intervene. And God, we don't expect you to do it all. Whatever we need to do, show us what it is and help us to do it. But God, we can't do it on our own. We need you. God, I pray right now. I know we prayed earlier. I pray you bring healing to bodies. I pray you bring peace to hearts. I pray you bring comfort, Lord God, to those that are mourning or sorrowful for some other reason. I pray that you bring strength to the weak, encouragement to the discouraged. 
lift the spirits of the depressed and help us all to just trust in you. And Father, I thank you that as we trust in you, you will do all those things. And we thank you and we praise you in advance. Can we just thank him for it right now? Lord, we thank you. We praise you. Thank you for what you've done, what you're doing, and what you're going to do in our salvation, in our lives, and our circumstances. We give you the glory and the honor and the praise. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. We hope you've enjoyed listening to today's message or Bible study. For more information, please contact us at area code 352-347-3001 or visit us online. If you are interested in supporting this ministry, go to our website and click on the online giving tab. Our website address is www.marionoaksag.org.